HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The Heritage End of Year Fund Drive is officially on. Become a member today at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Hello, this is Lisa Held, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Today's broadcast is a special season finale episode recorded at the 2018 Young Farmers Conference at the Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture on December 6th. The conference brings together some of the most ambitious, innovative young farmers each year to share tools, strategies, and experiences. And most of the farmers I spoke to said their favorite aspect of the event was socializing with their peers. Giving these farmers who usually work long, lonely hours in the field a space to feel connected to and supported by a community of like-minded professionals is crucial. Because at a time when the average age of the American farmer is approaching 60, the future of the food system depends on growing and supporting the next generation. While that's a far from simple task, the speakers and attendees were energized to tackle the challenges faced by young farmers and to shift the current agricultural paradigm to more immediately address issues like environmental impact, inequality, and racism. I spoke with four innovators, from Davon Goodwin, a U.S. Army veteran who was wounded in action and turned to farming in North Carolina to heal himself and give back to the community that supported him, to Ana Elisa Perez, who practices agroecology to restore soil and build food sovereignty on the island of Vieques in Puerto Rico. In these four short interviews, you'll hear young farmers share their stories, experiences, and the knowledge they want to pass on to other young people considering taking up farming as a profession. Okay, I'm here with Davon Goodwin, a young farmer from North Carolina. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, so where's your farm and what do you produce? Yep. So my farm is located in Rayford, North Carolina, and we produce uh, muscadine grapes. Muscadine grapes. What yep. um, are those for uh, produce, for wine? Yep. Like what? <laughs> yeah, so we do uh, five acres of table grapes, five acres of wine grapes. Ah. Um, that makes our 10-acre vineyard. And so we normally do pick your own. We sell to wineries. We do wholesale selling as well. Cool. That's so interesting. Um, so you gave the keynote 
last night, um, and which I unfortunately missed. <laughs> but um, this morning, the organizer started the conference by thanking you for such an inspiring talk. Um, so what was your overall message? Yeah, so I winged it, so I didn't... Uh, <laughs> uh, I thought I had stuff in my mind that I was going to say, but when I got up there, it was just... It felt different. Um, and so the overarching thing was about community. Mm-hmm. You know, how community was an integral part of my development as a young farmer. But what community means to a young farmer, you know, as you grow as a farmer and as you grow your business. So I really want to emphasize, you know, what community has done for me, but what community can do for other farmers as well. And so when you say that, you're talking about the community of young farmers, um, like supporting each other. Uh, and also the community that your farm is in. Mm. Uh, I think community has a huge role, you know, to play in your uh, your farm enterprise, you know. And I think that for farming, for me, has been community-centric because community helped save me in a sense. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's one of those things that uh, I hold dear to my heart, you know, and that's why I farm, you know, for the community. Mm. When you say community helped save you, what do you mean? Yeah, so I was in the Army uh, from 2007 to 2014. In 2010, I got hurt in Afghanistan. You know, so my vehicle hit an IED, and I suffered a traumatic brain injury, and I broke my L1 and L2 in my lower back. Um, and so from that point on, life got hard. You know, life was life was real, real quick. Um, and my community helped save me. You know, they kind of instilled things in me that I lost that day, you know. And right. so I kind of, in my opinion, I'm indebted to my community. You know, because they uh, poured into me in a time in my life when I needed some some help. You right. know, so I feel like this is a my farm is kind of a reinvestment back in my community what my community has given me. Yeah, um, and that experience did that impact um, your decision to go into farming? Were you a farmer before, or was that related to? Yes, that's a great question. So before. My goal was to uh, get a PhD in botany, travel the world, do medicinal botany. Um, And when that truck got blown up that day, I don't know what happened, but I walked out uh, that truck different um, because the mission that day ended. And so when I got back to uh, North Carolina, the new mission was to serve my community, you know, because I I needed a a sense of service. I needed a sense of giving back. Um, And so farming became my new mission. Farming became something that um, was new to me. I don't come from a farming family. I'm originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, so never knew nothing about farming. And so farming was, I think, the reason why I'm still here today. Without farming, I definitely wouldn't be here. Yeah. A lot of people that I've interviewed before have talked about how farming can be really healing, like being from trauma. And I'm curious if that, was that something you experienced, um, like sort of getting out on the land? as someone who was really recovering from serious physical yeah. and I'm sure also emotional trauma. Yeah, so that's the thing that has been, the, I guess, the really interesting part of the story. Uh, I think farming is definitely healing. And I think there's a, a component with soil. I definitely think when you put, put your hands in the dirt, you'll, you'll never be the same. It, it does something to you. And for me, at the time of my life, I was in kind of a crisis mode. You know, after getting blown up, uh, life went down real quick. You know, I didn't, um, I didn't have a purpose. You know, I didn't really care too much about life, you know. Uh, before the accident, I was on top of the world. And then after, I was on the bottom, you know. Yeah. Um, and so farming gave me a sense of uh, purpose. It gave me a sense of wholesome and that I can make an impact on my community, you know. And so without farming, I, I know I wouldn't be here because uh, it's really where what nature can do for you. And for me, I think it definitely saved my life. Yeah. I mean, there's real science that shows that, like, nature, being in nature can... Yeah, I needed the sense of um, tranquility on the farm, yeah. uh, the hard work, but it, it was it's a place of refuge to me. It was, it was a place of um, a sense of security, mm-hmm. you know, um, 
but also on the flip side of that, farming became very isolating too. You know, um, and so that's why I became community centric because when I first started farming, it was all about me. You mm. know, and so I didn't let the, nobody in. The farm became kind of like my compound. You know, where I felt like this is only my place that I can. I know I'm safe at. Right. You know, um, and that wasn't working. You know, so that was. The farm was a benefit, but then it started being a hindrance to me as well. And so then I started bringing the community in for pick your own, you know, and that's when I really started realizing what I meant to the community as far as, you know, me being a productive citizen in the community, but me also giving people access in the community. Right. And so you have your farm and you're bringing people onto the farm, you know, um, the community. Um, I also saw that you work to bring farming into prisons. Is that right? Yeah. Well, that's a program that we have with youth. Um, and so I'm a member, a board member of the growingchange.org, which is out of Scotland County, North Carolina, which we have a, it's kind of a mentoring farming program in the community. Uh, we have uh, juveniles who have been either out of home, placed out of school, placed or through juvenile corrections. And we kind of pair mentor them with other people in the community. Um, and so we have a prison site that's a decommissioned prison uh, in Wagram, North Carolina, that we're flipping to a sustainable farm community center. Cool. Yeah. Um, is that uh, what kind of change do you see in the young people that you work with, um, you know, as you're training them and getting them into farming? Yeah, it, it gives them um, belief in themselves. You know, it gives them that, that same sense of purpose, mm-hmm. you know, and it makes them uh, look a lot different to the community. I think before the community looked at them as a hindrance, and I think now they look at the kids as an asset, you know, because they're doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. You know, but I think the kids can do more for you than you really realize because the kids were my therapeutic group, you know? So when I became a mentor, I felt like I didn't have anything to, to really do with mentor. And I feel like I didn't know who I was. And so I'm a mentor to these kids when I'm going through, you know, my trauma and they were, you know, uh, so integral into my story, you know, and they became my little therapy group, you know? So these adolescent teens who most people will write them off, but they became, you know, people that I can find in, you know, and that they trusted me and I trusted them with my story. Mm. So you're doing a lot and, um, you know, we're sort of talking about these um, inspiring, um, these ways that farming can really be inspiring and um, impactful. Um, Then there's also sort of the really practical parts of farming, right? Like, it's really hard work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And um, I'm curious, um, especially when you start from not having a farming background, Right. Um, when you're young and, you you know, you're not inheriting a farm, you're not. Yeah. Um, what are some of the biggest challenges that you faced just, you know, from a practical perspective in terms of making a living as a farmer? Yeah. So land access, capital access. We had student loan debt, you know, so we had all the barriers to entry. Um, and so I think, you know, people don't realize when you don't come from a farming family, it's hard to break into that mold. I mean, it's it's one of the uh, most heavily intensive on equipment on labor um, and you have you have to start with something and when you don't start with anything it makes that rise to the top that much harder yeah. you know so for us it's been you know five years of saving five years of sacrifice I live in a camper my family lives two hours from me you know in Charlotte you know um, and so it's one of the things that we've sacrificed a lot you know and so this year about two months ago we just purchased our first 42 acres of land wow. you know um, and that's we spent three hundred thousand dollars on that, on that, um, and we still had you no know, seventy grand worth of student loan debt. Mm-hmm. You know, and so when you're looking at, and we still need probably another hundred thousand dollars to um, get the farm in operation. 
Um, and so you're looking at, you know, almost half a million dollars in debt. You know, we're under the age of 30. Yeah. You know, most people will say, what are you doing? You know, but for us, we look at it as we're not going to count the cost of the cost for us to be successful. We're just not. I mean, we we feel as though farming is something that as a family has brought us closer together. Um, and so it means more than the the money in a sense, you know, I think we do farm because it is a, a, a revenue stream, but also we farm, you know, to give back to our community has given so much to us, mm-hmm. you know. And so a lot of people ask me, how do I sleep at night with so much debt? Um, I don't know how she would do it as a young farmer. You yeah. know, I mean, I wasn't born into this. And so you kind of kind of buy your way in, you know, and it's a, it's a steep, you know, learning curve, but also there's a steep financial curve. Because, you know, we've been saving up our little pennies these last five years, you know, to be able to make this next hurdle. Yeah. You said um, your family. Does your family work with you on the farm? <laughs> it's interesting. So my fiance, oh. um, she likes to farm. Uh, <laughs> she's an ER nurse. Okay. Um, and so she likes to farm to look pretty. She's not going... I mean, she picks a little bit, you know, <laughs> but it's really uh, me on the farm. And I have um, two guys who help. You know, my son, he's a six-year-old, so he loves running through the vineyard, picking grapes off and eating grapes. And so it's um, it's it's more about, you know, what we give to other people than I think what the farm gives us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're at the Young Farmers Conference. Um, you know, they tapped you to give the keynote because... I think you have a mess. You know, you have a message, and you have a story that um, other farmers can learn from. Um, what's What's the biggest piece of advice you would give to another young farmer who's just starting out or trying to thinking about getting into farming? Yeah, so I think my biggest advice is not to give up. You know, it's going to be some dark days. It's going to be daunting. You know, um, but to be really practical and methodical on on your journey. You know. Um, you know, look at your credit, you know, make sure that you're saving anything that you can. Uh, make sure you're not just saving for now, but saving for later. You know, we're not, we may not farm a whole life and there's life after farming. And so I would say, you know, learn as much as you can, come to conferences like this at Stone Barns. Um, and so learn as much as you can. So when your opportunity comes, ready to hit the ground running, you know, and just be mindful that, you know, farming is going to be bigger than you. You know, farming is, um, there's a greater mission other than just, you know, looking at it from a, a self-fulfilling, you know, standpoint, and that if you turn to your community, uh, you'd be surprised how your community will pour back into you. Right. Davon, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay, I'm here with Ana Elisa Perez, a young farmer from Vieques, Puerto Rico. Um, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Um, so, first of all, tell us about your farm. Uh, we have a small agroecological farm in the mountains of Vieques, which aren't very high. Okay. <laughs> um, and we, it's a small farm, about three acres, and we do everything by hand. We plow by hand and work everything by hand within what is called uh, agroecology, no? which are systems that work with nature instead of against nature, but it's also a political uh, movement in especially Latin America and the Caribbean and other parts of the world uh, that works around uh, farmers' rights and the possibility of having possibility of food sovereignty for our island. 
And we have different educational programs um, where we do formaciones, like uh, trainings for uh, small farmers to, because in Vieques there used to be a lot of farmers. And then the Navy occupied around 60 years ago, the U.S. Navy, and took most of the lands, around 26,000 acres, and left all of the population in six acres. 6,000 acres. They just took it from farmers. They took it from farmers and, yeah, from small peasants. And so most of the people moved to the main island of Puerto Rico because we're really an archipelago and to San Croix, to the Virgin Island. Um, so all of the farmland was left, uh, you know, without anybody. And it used to be the Tacita de Oro, like the cup of the golden cup of the Caribbean. Mm. Uh, but it, people were displaced. So now we're kind of going back to those lands. There was a massive movement in the from the 80s to the 2000s. In 2001, the Navy finally leaves the island. It was an island, they did bombing practices in Vieques. Mm-hmm. And now people are kind of going back to the land and there were a lot of land rescues. So we are, we're, we're a small farm that works specifically with trying to uh, do more around farming in our island. Mm-hmm. Um, we also in Puerto Rico import more than 85% approximately, that's uh, there's different people. Some people say 90, some people say 95. But mm. basically, we produce a little less than 15% of what we eat. So it's crucial for us to learn or relearn how to produce food and how to advocate uh, around the food production. Right. Um, so. so are you, um, you said there's sort of this movement um, mm-hmm. to reclaim that land. And so are, are there a lot of farms like yours uh, well, they're starting to burst. Okay. They're sprout a little bit more. <laughs> um, in the 80s, there was a movement. This was when the Navy was still there uh, of people that were actually living in San Croix that were from Viequense family mm. who decided to go back to Vieques and reclaim their land. And that's actually one of the ways that really the Navy was kicked out of Vieques because mm. it was a big pressure all of a sudden to have families living in all of this land. And so where the farm is, is actually part of that movement. Um, but people were taking back the land, but not necessarily farming it. It was more of a reclaiming of the, of the space. Got and it. so they started putting in houses, fencing, and that's how most of Vieques is actually right now. So a lot of people don't have land titles, mm. or proper uh, titles for the land. Um, most of the of the communities in Vieques are from, of reclaimed land. Mm. And now from the courses and different initiatives, people are going back to, a lot of them already knew about farming, mm-hmm. but weren't connected to it. Uh, because of the whole displacement, no? And and yeah. also people who have come from the main island. So now we're starting to kind of produce a new network of farms, especially far- small farms, which is the idea not to have like a big monocrop production, but to have smaller farmers. There's now a farmer that specializes more in plantain mm. and other farmers that are producing greens and we sell amongst each other. Uh, but it's not that many farms yet. Hopefully, there'll right. be a lot more. But, <laughs> but little You're by little, yeah. <laughs> so, um, and 
you, so the idea is kind of reducing the the imported food, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're trying to grow food um, for the people, um, the community, the people that live there. Um, how do you get the food to people? Um, is it farmers markets? Is it CSAs? Mm-hmm. Like, what's the the model that you use? We have a truck, a pickup truck, and that in the back has sort of this, we call it la zambumbia, which means the mix of different vegetables. Um, It's like a soup or like whenever my mom, there were leftovers, right? uh, she would be like, let's do a zambumbia. And so you sort of throw everything in. (laughs) That's great. And so we call it la zambumbia, and we do, we go around and have different points where people receive the food, Mm. but we're trying to... Um, kind of formalize a little bit more to be able to accept EBT uh, cards mm-hmm. and to do a box like a CSA. Okay. Uh, but uh, the product, we were just starting that right before the hurricane. So then the hurricane came and we've been kind of a little bit, le- we left it behind a little bit. Okay. And then we had a big drought in Vieques this year. So it's been kind of tough, a tough year. Yeah. Uh, but hopefully we'll be back on track and be able to produce more food for this next year, no? And be able to actually do the CSA, etc. Mm. We are formalizing at least the the so the farm is called Finca Conciencia, and it's more informal setting. But then we have um, La Colmena Cimarrona, the um, the maroon beehive, mm. uh, which is the organization where we are doing all of this more formal uh, paperwork for the farms, etc. And to be able to do, and it's more like the network of farmers. Okay. It's more like a mutual support network between farmers in Vieques and beekeepers in, in Vieques. Este, so, so that's more of the, uh, know, how we're organizing, no? Right. Este, yeah. You know. And I wanted to ask you um, about the hurricane. Um, you just mentioned it. Um, how, how much did that affect your farm and the other Mm -hmm. farms around you well it it was kind of like a weed whacker that all of a sudden weeded everything out Um, in the middle of the island some places are more protected because there's mountains around Mm -hmm. and really the issue was more that a lot of trees fell down to the farms etc in our case the hurricane literally came in through Vieques and not a lot of people talk about that because they show just the map of the hurricane coming in through Yabucoa, which is one of the southernmost, south, southern east towns in okay. Puerto Rico. And Vieques is southern east right before Yabucoa, no? And so the hurricane came through Vieques, through the south of Vieques, and the farm is kind of in a hill. So it took down a lot of things. We don't have any more avocados for a few years. Um, lemons, we used to have really good lemons. Um, but it was good because there were areas that it did like a natural pola, like mm-hmm. it, it it cleaned out some areas that needed some sun. Huh. Um, and at the same time, it was That's very optimistic. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and it was really the soil got really good after the hurricane, to be huh. honest. So we actually did have pretty good production after the hurricane, but then the drought came. And that's actually what ruined more even than the hurricane. In terms of like our, we lost our house. So that was obviously take some time away from the farm to kind of rebuild. And at least I kind of couldn't deal with the farm and went and did a lot of community support work and then uh, kind of left the farm yeah. uh, because I couldn't kind of deal psychologically with it. Right. And now I'm like, maybe I should have been more there. But 
you know? I mean, you are dealing with a lot. Yeah. We did some community kitchens, and I think it it helped to think more about food. And since Vieques didn't receive a lot of food, because we're we're a small island next to the main island, so the ferry didn't come for a long time. There was no communication. There was this kind of new... Uh, more interest in, in being auto sustainable and self sufficient. Self sufficient, right. Um, and, and food so, sovereignty. And food like sovereignty. Yeah. So I think it kind of made more clear the idea of. So we did a vegetable garden in the community uh, where the community kitchen was established. Mm. So it was a way also, I guess, of of getting people more interested in, in, in agriculture. We did some trainings in, in agroecology right after the hurricane for people to start planting again. Mm. So este, at least in that way, it was, it was okay. Right. <laughs> uh, but obviously it kind of is traumatic to lose everything and then kind of go back to creating it again. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of been that process of, of starting back again. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I was going to ask you about challenges, and that's like certainly. I mean, and and to have it be followed by the drought. Yeah, that was more of a challenge, even because uh, since we we didn't have running water in Vegas, we still don't really have in a lot of places nor electricity. We run through a diesel plant all of the island, so there's a lot of uh, shutdowns of electricity. And so it's been a big challenge to be able, especially because of the water, yeah. to to farm this year. But, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, so I, I want to ask you about so um, at the conference you're doing you're leading a session and mm-hmm. it's on um, Africanized beekeeping. Yeah. So what is what is that all about? Can you give me like a little uh, summary? <laughs> yeah, the bees in in the Caribbean in general are Africanized bees. Mm. There's really no questions asked. Some people are still in denial. Uh, but most of the bees are, are Africanized bees, which is really a hybrid of the European or uh, different bees that existed before that people used to use for honey, the Apis mellifera. But a scientist in Brazil that was interested in incrementing, I don't know if that's a word, in like making more production. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Producing an increment, uh, incrementing. <laughs> I don't know. Incrementar is in Spanish. So I'm like inventing words yeah, in like English. Este, the, the, he wanted to have more production of honey for small producers in Brazil. Mm. And so since Brazil is tropical, he decided to bring in bees from uh, Africa. So ah. the scutellata and other species of Africanized bees, of African bees. Okay. And those bees um, ex- escaped because bees, you can't really, we can always manage and work right. with bees, but we can't domesticate bees. That's yeah. impossible. And it's good, I think, that we can't do that. Mm-hmm. And so it's not like other animals that will follow orders, etc. No. So the bees escaped and mixed with the other bees, no? So now we have Africanized bees. And there was this whole idea that these bees were going to eat children alive and they were aggressive. But really, they were just a kind of freer bees. Mm. They weren't used to people, no? So if people start weed whacking next mm. to a beehive, the bees would get mad. So right. they will be more defensive, but not more aggressive. So uh, we're kind of breaking all of these myths 
of what the Africanized bees are, which are really kind of myths of ra- fundamented in racism. Right. And so in the Caribbean, we're kind of, uh, we're really saying that these bees can save the world because with the idea of population decline of bees, these bees are a lot more resilient. Ah. So they are a lot quicker. Uh, they produce more honey. They visit more flowers in less time. Uh, they're smaller, and there's this idea that they can that they are that they swarm a lot, uh, but it's really because the boxes that we prepare for them are too small for their necessities. Mm. So they so will the systems are set leave. up for the European uh-huh. bees, or yeah. And so now it's kind of resetting the system, and so the talk is a little bit about that, and then how we're working with other beekeepers for those changes because really it's something kind of new. The mm. Africanized bees reached Puerto Rico around 94, okay. 1994, and it's really been great for beekeeping, but we have to manage differently mm-hmm. because, again, they're a lot more productive, but they need other things. They, for example, don't accept the frame, the foundation. We put a foundation for the bees that is wax okay. for them to be quicker because producing wax takes a lot of time. Bees produce the wax, but it you know, they have to form chains and okay. give each other the wax to form the the comb. They're so amazing. They're amazing. <laughs> if we knew how to organize like bees, the right. world would be so different. <laughs> uh, so they uh, they create this foundation uh, for mm-hmm. the honey. So we put a foundation that's already created. So, so like speed easier. up the process. Uh-huh, like, okay. uh, sometimes we leave them and they do them themselves, but we like to help them in that sense. Mm-hmm. And so they didn't accept the foundation that is a little bit bigger, the like the comb, the mm-hmm. hole in the comb. And they need one that is smaller. It's 4.9, I believe, mm-hmm. centimeters. And so they need a smaller foundation. There's like those tiny details that really make a difference. Mm. But if you don't know them, you just think that these bees are like, they don't want to build where you, Mm. you know? So they would like build outside of the, of the box or like build in the corners and beekeepers would be frustrated, but it's because we're not necessarily using the foundation that they need. No. Mm. So there's all of these little, um, things with the bees um, yeah. that are, you know, yeah, uh, just a practice. And in Brazil, the 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 amount of honey that was produced after people managed the bee differently was a lot more than what they used to produce. So mm-hmm. it's really incre- incremented again. Yeah. <laughs> it's really kind of made it more productive, no? Right. Este, este. Well, that's, I mean, that's really, um, like... I don't know. I feel uh, that makes me feel really optimistic that mm-hmm. there are these bees. That yeah, are yeah. Maybe if we, because you know, it is really um, terrifying the mm-hmm. decline of the you know yeah. bee po- population. Yeah. So um, that sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so before we wrap up, um, since we're at the Young Farmers Conference, um, mm-hmm. and you know, you are running this amazing farm. You've had a lot of challenges. Um, what's the biggest piece of advice that you would give to another young farmer who is just starting out or thinking about getting into farming? Wow. Um, Make sure where you're starting, like the piece of land that you decided to get into and how you got into it. One of the biggest challenges is finding land Mm -hmm. um, that is accessible economically, etc. So I guess uh, once you get the land, 
yeah. uh, to make sure to put some water quickly, like a well or some sort of um, way of, yeah, yeah, of gathering water. Water is fundamental. And I don't know, it's a lot of work. You have to really want to farm. Mm. And so I think there's all of these ideas of farming that are very romanticized mm -hmm. and beautiful and and yes farming is beautiful and there's nothing like waking up and you know having the sunset and it's amazing but you have to really like it it's very strenuous on your body and very hard so the people who get into it they have to really like it unless You can also be, you have, can other have, have other roles in the food system. It mm -hmm. doesn't, not everybody has to be a farmer is the other thing I think that. So to really think about what your role can be, you know, mm -hmm. if it is farming or if it's something else and, and you have to be good at waking up early and <laughs> uh, make sure to do a lot of stretches because my back really hurts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so like how to take care of your body without yeah. it seeming like. Uh, something that is um, like you actually have to take the time to yeah. do that which before I didn't even think about it now I'm like oh I need to stretch before right. you know doing certain things so yeah. so again it's like a kind of I don't know if a calling but you have to really enjoy the land and it's very fulfilling mm. but you have to really you know it, uh, and yeah. make sure to set up your boundaries because I didn't set them up necessarily when I was starting and so like a lot of people will show up at the farm and it takes time so how to organize those times also mm -hmm. it's very crucial when you're starting perfect <laughs> well thank you so much for your time I really appreciate it thank you too <laughs> I'm here with Hallie Webking uh, from Meadowlark Organics in Wisconsin. Welcome. Thank you. So you're in Wisconsin now farming, um, yeah. but you were living and working in New York City for a long time, yep. correct? Yeah. Um, so, and you were working in restaurants, so food was still your passion. Yeah, yeah. definitely. So what um, made you make the leap into farming? So my husband comes from a farming family in southwestern Wisconsin, and we actually met cooking at Prune in New York. Um, and after we had both left that restaurant and we had started dating, he said that he wanted to go back and work his family farm. Um, and I was like, that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> uh, so we kind of jumped into it um, without really, I don't come from a farming background, well, probably some ways back I do but mm -hmm. um, not anytime recently so um, you know for me it was kind of a continuation in uh, on my path from I studied dance in college mm -hmm. then I went to cooking and restaurants and then now I'm farming and it's like <clears throat> this through line of physical activity um, and then kind of turning more towards service and how can I uh, you know, participate in our society and do something that matters mm -hmm. um, with really like food being central to it um, for me. So, And so your husband had, you said it was his family farm. Had yeah. he actually worked on the farm like when he was younger? Um, a little growing mm -hmm. up, but he also kind of split his childhood between um, Lancaster where his family's farm was and then 
uh, Milwaukee. So he had kind of an urban rural childhood. Um, his dad had always like worked the weekends on the farm, but it wasn't a full time experience for him either. Mm. So, um, did it feel like culture shock when you <laughs> left New York um, and then you were on a farm in Wisconsin? Yeah, definitely. And it was it was challenging too because. Um, when we first started in Wisconsin, we were running a like a farm to table breakfast and lunch cafe. Mm. We kind of transitioned like oh. into I don't know into farming through um, while also having this other job, mm. and um, you know people didn't really weren't terribly accepting. Generally, felt very much like we were outsiders, and um, we ended up actually leaving John's family's farm operation because there wasn't a clear path for us to take that over. So mm. we moved and found a job with um, our current mentor and boss, his name is Paul Bickford, and landed in kind of actually a better, a much better situation for us. And culturally, too, we have some other smaller towns that are uh, have a little bit more going on and feel a little bit more connected and other young farmers in the area. So kind of lucked out in that sense. But definitely a culture shock going from Brooklyn to, because we lived in Bushwick, mm. you know, worked in Manhattan and then also in Brooklyn, but, um, and then moved to a town. This population of the town we live in is 400 people. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so. That's a very big difference. <laughs> yeah. Um, I read in your bio that when you started farming, you were eight months pregnant. Yeah. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, well, we had worked on John's family's farm and really what the aha moment was was when I was eight months pregnant and I was raking hay and I was like you know we moved here to do this full time if we we need to find an opportunity that allows us to farm full time we don't want to do this part time we don't want to do it on the weekends you know we really want to commit to this Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's when I actually went on Craigslist and I found this job posting from our current boss (laughs) so um very kind of lucky that that all came about but um yeah we started working for Paul when I was like eight eight and a half months pregnant wow yeah (laughs) and um so you're working for him on his farm Mm -hmm. um and um is the idea that he's looking to pass the farm on to you yeah yeah um he does he doesn't I mean, his original Craigslist post was really about having this depth of knowledge and a desire to pass it on. Um, and, uh, you know, he's he's now 65, so he started to think, you know, five, ten years ago about what the, what the future of this land was that he had been farming since he was in his early or middle 20s or something. Um, and so when he hired us, there was a real... Um, very upfront conversation about that if this relationship worked out that the goal would be for us to take over his farm um, in whatever however that manifests so that's what we're working towards it's kind of interesting because it's like you know there's there's so many conversations happening right now about land transfer and succession and yeah it's almost like it's it's maybe the only example I've ever heard of where the fam- like there sort of was a family farm, but then yeah. that didn't kind of work out. And now yeah. it's sort of in this situation where there could potentially be this sort of succession, but it doesn't, and it's not a family transfer. Yeah, thing, for sure. Which is kind of cool. I think when we moved to Wisconsin, I remember seeing a 
a book on my in-laws shelf that was titled, Is There a Moral Obligation to Save the Family Farm? And when I moved, I would have said, yes, like, you know, this land has been in this family for a hundred years. And, and then after, you know, now I would say no. I think like we have a greater impact where we are and the amount of land, you know, we farm 700 acres mm-hmm. um, with the opportunity to add to that. Um, and the impact we have, you know, it doesn't have to be tied to your family land. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just the commitment to the practice of farming. Right. So, And so you learned a lot from Paul, yeah. right? You sort of came on as... Yeah, still. <laughs> right, you're yeah. learning from him all the time. Yeah. Um, but you also made a lot of changes to his farm, is yeah. that right? Yeah, um, So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so Paul, fortunately, is not the typical... Uh, or the stereotypical farmer that is, like, rigid and set in his ways. He's actually gone through many transfer, transformations even before we came to work for him. So that the land that we farm originally was a confinement dairy. And at a certain point in the early 90s, he realized that he had to make a change or sell his cows. And he um, decided to go to a grass-based uh, milking operation. So at one point he was milking like 700 cows on pasture, wow. which is like pretty revolutionary, especially in the early nineties in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at a certain point he ended up having to sell his cows and transitioned it to an organic, um, pretty traditional crop farm. So alfalfa for hay, uh, corn and soybeans for other, um, small livestock and then, uh, other organic da- dairies in the area. And, Um, Then when we came, we uh, really kind of shifted the focus to add a lot of diversity and focus on food-grade small grains. So um, coming from a food background and having this access to this, you know, many hundred acres um, and also the right equipment to to grow small grains, it was a pretty easy transition, I think, for us to start to grow winter wheat and then spring wheats and then alternative grains like buckwheat and um, open pollinated corn and we do some edible dry beans. So really trying to add add a bunch of diversity and also capture value wherever we can because, you know, farming is hard yeah. <laughs> economically and to be able to add, um, add products or add uh, crops that we can gain more from, um, in a value-added sense, uh, is really important for our operation. Yeah. And so are those newer crops, are you selling them locally or are you selling them into, because I would imagine if most of the land was in organic soy and corn before, that's probably being sold wholesale, right? Into Um, well, Paul had actually established a lot of direct, um, relationships with some Amish farmers. So spent a lot of his and still does his winters trucking hay. And there are a lot of like homestead scale um, farmers in our area, people who come to pick up feed. So it's a, fortunately we don't, not that we don't uh, have to, but our first step is to direct market, even our feed crops, Mm. um, instead of selling directly to an elevator. Um, And that still does happen sometimes. Like, you know, the beginning of the season, we had to empty out our (laughs) grain bins and stuff. But but the food grade stuff, there's fortunately a local stone mill um, that we're able to hire as a toll miller. So we're selling flour and cornmeal under our own brand. um, And they're milling for us. Uh, and so we sell to bakers and groceries um, in 
like the western part of the state and then also Madison and the Chicago area. So just is, getting started. Yeah, and is that a um, is that pretty rare to have a mill like that accessible nearby? Like, yeah. Is that a barrier for other people? To oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah, I think, um, you know, there's so much infrastructure in this regional grain economy that um, to get from the farmer who wants to grow small grains to a Pro, like the value-added product takes a lot, both like on the agronomic side and the, you know, when it comes off the field, you have to have the cleaning equipment, the storage equipment, um, you know, I, a way to haul it. <laughs> uh, and then to have, you you have to have a mill that's accessible. And a lot of um, people can either, I don't know, we're, we're very lucky to have a mill that's close by that we can have this relationship with. But we're also trying to think about or working towards having a farm or a, a mill on our farm so that we can also control that part of the process. Mm. So before we wrap up, um, as a young farmer yourself who is doing the work, <laughs> um, what would be the biggest piece of advice you would give a young farmer starting out or thinking about getting into farming? Yeah. Craigslist. No, um, <laughs> no, but I think, I think, uh, trying to seek out a mentor, you know, like people have been doing this for a very long time. And there are a lot of people who have so much knowledge to share. And we're at a really critical time when we can't lose that knowledge. We have to be able to have ways to pass it on to, to our generation. And so whether it's through other organizations and finding farmer programs or just reaching out into your community or the community you want to be in and seeing if there's somebody who's willing to share their knowledge and become a mentor. I think that's really key. And it takes, you know, it might take some convincing and, uh, uh, you know, a promise to like <laughs> say, yes, I am committed. I will be here for, for years, if not ever, to learn from what you have, you know, but I think that's kind of we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing if we didn't have our relationship with Paul. Yeah. And we have been able to achieve so much in the short period of time that we've worked with him, like three and a half years, um, because of his openness and his like baseline that he started from. So I think for young farmers, you know, farming is a, can be a very rewarding career. Um, and you need a lot of support. You know, so like find your community, find your mentor. But, yeah, great. Holly, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Okay, I'm here with Jermaine Jenkins from Fresh Future Farm in South Carolina. Jermaine, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. So, um, why don't we start at the beginning? How did you get into farming? Um, out of necessity, in my case. Uh, I moved to Charleston to go to culinary school with two young children and um, to, uh, immediately had a need for food and was mission-driven that we move into a house and the house have a garden. Mm. And it all started with trying to figure out how people with limited resources can grow quality food mm. and for my family. And I did it. You know, it took seven years for us to get the house, and I got married. But um, the next thing you know, like, how, you know, how do we make this happen for our neighbors, you know, who live in food deserts? Mm. So how did you make that transition from a, a personal garden to running a farm? Uh, it, 
uh, wow, you know, time. <laughs> I didn't think about it like, like that's that. A really it big was question. Well, because it was, you know, it was 2000 when I moved to Charleston to go to culinary school, 2007 when we bought our house. And, and over the course of, you know, the years that followed, uh, I just dived into finding out how to grow food. Um, went through a master garden class in 2007 and then um, learned about permaculture the following year and just spent a lot of time kind of researching what our ancestors did with limited resources um, on the Internet. Mm. And... Um, through that process, found out about Will Allen and Growing Power. Mm. So, you know, somewhere like in 2014, I got training from them in commercial urban agriculture while I was doing like a feeding innovation competition in in our state, you know, and both giving me the information that I needed about location, you know, what kinds of services and stuff that we should offer um, and project planning. So it was a lot of self-educating um, through like different resources over the course of a few years to get us to start a farm. And I figured, you know, I um, was a single mom and it turns out like running a farm is not much more complicated than that. If you, if you, can, if you can be a single mom, you can run a not farm. Not many things yeah, are probably, yeah, right? Yeah, but it's, um, uh, it just helps, you know, with the problem solving that you need to do day to day to have had that experience, like taking care of myself and my kids when I didn't know anybody. So um, Fresh Future Farm uh, was born out of it. And what I'm proud of today is that we have two two single moms that work for us and can bring their kids to work. So uh, it's, it's, um, it's been a long process. We are very focused on, um, taking the people that need the jobs to do the work. So what's like unique about Fresh Future Farm is that our um, employees um, live or volunteered or interned or shopped before they started working for us. Uh. So we, um, you know, that's how we recruit. And our goal is to expand the same way that Growing Power did across um, uh, the low country with community members in the different food deserts that are in our area taking control of um, food access. So sort of like having different sites all that are all part of Fresh Future Farm. Right. Got yes, it. yes. But are led by people that live within those communities that need the service. Right. Yeah, we do the training and they run the show. Got it. So what does the current farm look like? Like, can you paint a picture of what you're growing um, and how you're getting the food to people? Well, um, uh, the other unique thing about Fresh Future Farm is that we are a farm with an on-site grocery store. So, and we we, uh, took a space behind an old school in the middle of a residential neighborhood and converted that from grass to banana trees, blueberry bushes, blackberries, apples, pears, citrus, um, bananas um, with annual crops, and right now it's you know arugula, lots of collards, kale, mustards. You know, really popular. We're like doing turnips and such, uh, but but a lot of perennials and in, in um, annuals mixed together is figs, loquats, uh, grapes. We have chickens there, wow. so we took like a small space. It's 0.81 acres that we are leasing from the city of North Charleston and hope to purchase. Um, in the next uh, year or so, but it's um, it's a lot of hard work, sweat, equity, and what I was able to do um, at the Young Farmers Conference here is talk about 
um, like best practices, avoid the mistakes that we made mm. in order to make like nonprofit grassroots farm work for other people in other places. Mm. What are some of the mistakes that you made? Oh, the the list is is long. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and it's it was, um, you know, I was in a position where I started. Um, because I got some funding that wasn't all the funding that I needed. So um, what my recommendation was for the people that took my class is that you not only like learn how to do a farm, but also learn how to run a nonprofit at the beginning. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm just, we're four years in and I'm taking those classes now. So, um, you know, I benefited from the fact that I'd had relationships over the course of these years with other folks. But the the process would have been a lot smoother had I learned the business end and nonprofits at the start. And um, just uh, making sure that when you recruit board members, you need a working board to help you do some of this work. And also, you know, how you connect you know, through community engagement is a super important. And we, we, I think we did a, a pretty good job with that. We, um, it's just about like that working board helping you connect with the community. So, you know, while you're in the process of like running, like we have a, a store that operates 50 hours a week, you know, plus the, the farm that it's located um, with, uh, just making like all of the pieces run and you don't have to do all the work. Mm. Delegating as much as possible with people you trust at the beginning of the process. And also uh, in your partnerships, collaborating with people that have the same values as you. Because we, um, we told folks not to exploit, don't exploit your customers, but also don't exploit yourself. Because you're doing work, make sure that whomever you partner with is also doing some work, that they're not using the, the work that you're doing to get funding for themselves out of a, an artificial partnership. So just working smarter, not um, harder, mm-hmm. is what we um, what I stressed yesterday. Um, and you're talking a lot about the nonprofit model, because that's yes. your model, and mm-hmm. that's you had your um, session at the conference on that. Um, what it what would the benefit of um, using that model be? Like, say say um, a farmer is starting out and they're kind of trying to decide, should we set up as a for-profit venture or a nonprofit? Um, like, what do you see as the benefit of um, running it as a nonprofit? Well, you know, honestly, as somebody you know, who comes from a working class background, it's a nonprofit model that helps you get the resources that you need, the tax deductible resources that you need to run your operation. Mm-hmm. If you if you um, have access to outside wealth and people that can fund your, your work, then you don't need to be a nonprofit. But for me, I, I did not have the money, although, you know, I... Um, you know, started with like pulling a part of our little tax refund that we got mm-hmm. to get our business started. Um, if you if you don't have your know, money beyond like what you're using to pay your bills and stuff, I, this is this is the way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, unless you know Oprah knocks on your door, but no, Oprah, if you want to knock on my door, <laughs> but but uh, but realistically, you know, yeah. if for folks with um, with the passion to do the work. Um, nonprofit gives you an opportunity to get in there, but you know you you can't get those tax deductible resources if you don't have a track record mm. ahead of time, and that's what I had. Um, thank goodness because of some work that I was doing with the school that's directly behind where the farm is now, and partnership with another um, nonprofit to start a community garden mm. two blocks away from where the farm is, and that that project's seven years old. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. And so, are you? Um 
are, how are you getting the food to people? Are people like members of the farm? Oh are no, we we have a grocery store. Oh okay. Yeah. So so when you we, say grocery store, you mean just the I mean a grocery you... store, like where you know we we sell. You know, like maybe 20% of what we sell over the course of the year, we grow. Oh, okay. But we also procure, we have the cereal, we have oh. the milk, the eggs, everything that a person um, would need who um, hasn't ac- had access. Like the neighborhood where our farm is located, um, the last grocery store that was there closed in 2005. And we didn't open until our grocery store until 2016. Wow. So uh, we have over 300 products in our store that we sell. So it's really a lot more than a farm. And yeah. A farm is sort of one element. Right. And that's the produce that's in the store. But you're also just providing food to the community in a bigger way. Too. Yeah. And, and quality jobs and training, too, because we want to, um, to take the folks that, you know, get the training we have in, like, uh, not our natural farming. We're working on organic and GAP certification. But, you know, giving them the skills that are transferable so they can go beyond the farm and start their own businesses. And that's how you build wealth. Um it you know, takes some education, so we we're proud of that work. And um, if folks want to find out more about what we do, uh, it's freshfuturefarm.org is our website. We also live streamed uh, or did a Facebook live of the actual session. Oh, perfect. So if, if folks want to check it out, they can go to our our Facebook page. Great. Um, through this conversation, I think you've naturally been kind of sharing a lot of your expertise, the mistakes you made, Mm -hmm. um, and how that informs, you know, uh, for other people, uh, advice, right? Like, Mm -hmm. um, so that they don't make the same mistakes. Um, but, um, since it's the Young Farmers Conference, can you just leave, um, listeners with one, like the biggest piece of advice you would give a young farmer starting out? The biggest piece of advice that I'd give a young farmer starting out, um, in farming, whether it's for profit or nonprofit, is to like seek out every op- opportunity to learn your craft. Um, uh, there are farmers all over the country. You know, you find those people that you admire and go work with them. And uh, because you know um, farming is hard work, they're usually going to welcome you um, to do those opportunities. So, so build your craft by learning from the people that you admire, and then start your operation. Perfect. Thank you so much for listening to this special season finale episode of The Farm Report from the 2018 Young Farmers Conference. Don't forget to subscribe to The Farm Report on your favorite podcast app so you'll be the first to know when our new season starts in January. See you next year. For the past 10 years, Heritage Radio Network has brought listeners around the world the most important voices in food and drink. I'm Matt Patterson, the lead engineer here at HRN. Six years ago, when I was teaching myself to brew beer out in San Diego, I listened to Heritage Radio shows for tips, tricks, and inspiration. Heritage Radio's programming simply would not be possible without the support of listeners like you. Become a member of Heritage Radio Network today and give HRN a strong start to our second decade. Choose from exclusive member gifts and stay in the loop on discounts to upcoming events. Now is the best time to show your support for HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. 
Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.